Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at this week's news. The trade war is back. As the Trump administration confirmed, it will be applying an additional 25% duty on about 50 billion U.S. dollars worth of Chinese imports that contain, quote, industrially significant technologies, unquote, as early as July 6th. China responded within hours, saying it will levy its own additional 25% tariff on the same amount of U.S. imports. The Trump administration's move reignited U.S.-China trade tensions following weeks of strained negotiations between Washington and Beijing. This comes as American relations with multiple major trading partners have grown increasingly bitter. The U.S. also faces retaliation over tariffs imposed on allies such as Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. Last week, the International Monetary Fund warned that Trump's new tariffs threatened to undermine the global trading system, prompt retaliation by other countries, and damage the U.S. economy. China's economic growth showed signs of losing steam in May as fixed asset investment, industrial output, and retail sales all trailed analyst estimates. Economists said the across-the-board slowdown is partly due to the government's campaign to control corporate and financial sector debt. The central government has tightened control over public-private partnership projects which were designed to attract private capital, to fund construction projects like roads, bridges, and hospitals, to ease financial pressure on cash-strapped local authorities. A crackdown on banks' off-balance sheet activities such as shadow banking and wealth management products has also limited the ability of local governments to raise money. One of the few bright spots in the investment picture, however, was real estate, which remained a driver of economic activity. China has decided to pull money from provincial-level pension funds to create a national pool to address growing pension deficits in poorer regions. The arrangements will allow the central government to take a set amount of money from pension funds currently managed by provinces, municipalities, and autonomous regions and redistribute it to those with shortfalls. The change comes at a time when China is facing a looming demographic crisis because of its rapidly aging population and alarmingly low birth rate. 
at the end of 2017, China had 240 million people over the age of 60, 17% of the country's 1.4 billion people. Generally, a population is considered to be aging when 10% of its population is over 60. The number of newborns in China fell in 2017, despite the end of the one-child policy. A Chinese menswear company faked a collaboration with well-known New York streetwear brand Supreme, the latest case of a low-profile Chinese brand seeking exposure by engaging in deceitful marketing tactics. Video clips and photos of a recent so-called partnership signing ceremony were shared on Chinese and international social media, showing images of a huge red backdrop at an event covered with the logos of Supreme and OXN. In the video, a Chinese man and a black man stand against the backdrop, shake hands and exchange documents, while a host can be heard congratulating them on signing an agreement. Supreme later posted a photo of the event on its official Weibo account with a string of question marks as a caption. Supreme's Weibo editor told Caixin that the post was intended to deny the collaboration. The Guangdong-based company behind the OXN brand couldn't be reached for comment. The Chinese brand earlier announced on its official WeChat account that it was going to launch a product with Supreme in June. The statement was deleted on Thursday. Speaking of Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on one of the perennial issues of our time, Chinese vitamin C exports. In a 13-year-old antitrust dispute, the court unanimously ruled against Chinese firms that were accused of price-fixing. The firms argued that they were simply following Chinese law, which they said had compelled them to lower prices. The case pitted the Trump administration against China's Ministry of Commerce, which both provided lawyers for the companies involved. The ruling sends the case back to a lower appeals court and may result in the Chinese group being liable for nearly $150 million in damages. The former chairman of China's insurance regulator pled guilty at his corruption trial in Jiangsu province. Prosecutors said that Xiang Junbo took advantage of his positions at the Agricultural Bank of China and at the regulatory agency to help companies and individuals with loan and project approvals in exchange for three million U.S. dollars in bribes. Xiang, a veteran of the Sino-Vietnam War of 1979, was put under Communist Party investigation in April 2017, six years after assuming the helm of the China Insurance Regulatory Commission. The agency last year intensified a crackdown on the insurance industry that began in 2016 to rein in risky and irregular activities that posed risks to the stability of the financial system. The CIRC has since been absorbed into the newly created China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission. Some voiced sympathy for Xiang amid the investigation, as he was considered to have contributed to the advancement of the insurance industry in China, which was seen as a lagging sector in the Chinese financial market. Didi Chuxing, China's dominant ride-hailing platform that has 21 million drivers serving 25 million riders a day, has introduced a same-sex rides rule after a woman was killed using the service. Beginning this week, carpooling drivers are not allowed to pick up passengers of the opposite sex from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. and from 10 p.m. to midnight. The new measure comes after a Didi driver allegedly sexually assaulted and then killed a 21-year-old flight attendant that he was driving from an airport hotel to downtown in the northern city of Zhengzhou last month. Didi has admitted that the facial recognition procedure it uses to verify driver identities at night had malfunctioned for its Didi Hitch service, which pairs drivers and passengers traveling the same direction. The system failed to flag the false identity of the driver 
and send an alert to Didi. An increasing proportion of China's brightest overseas talent is being lured back home, a new survey shows. More evidence that the brain drain of well-educated Chinese leaving the country to seek better opportunities is being reversed. The new report by LinkedIn on what's known in Chinese as sea turtles, a reference to those who return after studying abroad, found that there was a substantial jump in the proportion of Chinese returning after gaining senior work experience overseas. The number of returnees in the 30 to 40 age bracket was 30%, almost double the 16% in 2013, according to the report, which analyzed data from 2.3 million overseas Chinese and 400,000 returnees who are members of LinkedIn. This group has been working overseas for many years and has a wealth of experience, LinkedIn said in a statement. After returning home, they often took up senior positions in the company and provided the backbone of the business. Returnees predominantly join China's financial sector or emerging sectors that the government has targeted as strategically important, such as artificial intelligence, big data, and cloud computing, the report showed. The study also found that many of the experienced returnees moved into higher-paid positions than they'd had abroad. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a closer look at some of this week's news. First up is Jingxuan Tang, reporter for Caixin Global. High-speed rail and Hong Kong are in the news. What, what's that issue here, Jingxuan? Well, Hong Kong is building a high-speed rail link to the mainland. Um, it's part of a bigger plan to connect Hong Kong and Macau, the special administrative regions, with the rest of China. That includes the world's longest sea bridge, between Hong Kong, Macau, and Zhuhai, which is in Guangdong province. And, of course, this express rail link, which will connect Hong Kong with Shenzhen and Guangzhou and plug into China's bigger high-speed rail system. So what happened is that legislators in Hong Kong voted to allow the new high-speed rail to have a joint mainland Hong Kong border checkpoint in the heart of Hong Kong, which means there will be mainland law enforcement officers stationed in West Kowloon Station, which if you've been to Hong Kong, that's pretty near major tourist uh, commercial areas. Well, I could probably take a pretty good stab at why there might be objections from some quarters, but uh, why don't you let us know what the fuss is all about? So the people proposing this joint border checkpoint, which they call the co-location plan, say that it will be more efficient, it will save time, and it'll realize the full potential of the high-speed rail link. It'll basically make journeys very smooth between central Hong Kong and, say, Shenzhen. But the people opposing it say that it goes against Hong Kong's constitution, the Basic Law, which prohibits mainland laws from being applied within Hong Kong, with the exception of some laws, like those that state the national anthem and national emblem of China. So there's been debate among academics and lawmakers in the region. There's been protests. In fact, the day that Hong Kong's Legislative Council voted to pass this bill, there were people protesting outside their building. And in fact, opposition lawmakers proposed 24 amendments to the bill, but they were all voted down on final day of debate. So in essence, under this law that's now been passed, there will be a section of West Kowloon Station where broad mainland law will apply. Yes. And finally, anyone who's been following Hong Kong mainland issues uh, will be aware of the sensitivity around encroachment on autonomy. But uh, what are the arguments on the pro side in in favor of actually having this law? Well, they argue that because the 
because China's National People's Congress Standing Committee approved the plan late last year, and the Legislative Council of Hong Kong voted for it, that it has a sound legal basis. Great. Thanks for talking to us, and we look forward to our next chat. Thanks, Kaiser. Next up is Doug Young, Managing Editor of Caixin Global. Let's follow up with you, Doug, about this evolving story we've all been watching about ZTE, the Chinese telecoms equipment manufacturing company that's been uh, in hot water with the U.S. and had a near-death experience. Uh, So what's going on now? Well, the immediate news is that two things. One, they finalized a, a settlement with the U.S., which will finally allow them to move ahead. They'd been sort of in a state of suspended animation for a while Uh, while they were trying to resolve this ban that they had faced over illegal U.S. component sales to Iran. It's a bit complex. The other news is that ZTE shares finally resumed trading after pretty much a a two-month suspension. So uh, just to give you the quick highlights, the main highlight of the settlement is basically ZTE has to pay a billion-dollar fine and give another $400 million in escrow in case they they do uh, more violations. And then the other thing is they basically have to overhaul the entire company management and board, uh, top management, I should say. So quite a large uh, change. And understandably, perhaps the stock essentially tanked after it resumed trading uh, in Hong Kong. It was down about 40%. So, you know, you're looking at wiping out half, almost half of the company's value, uh, but it had been suspended for about two months. So probably didn't surprise too many people. Is there any kind of precedent for what amounts, I mean, one might argue, to intrusion by a foreign government? Well, we see this kind of intrusion, but not to this extent that I've ever seen. There was a case a few years ago when uh, Qualcomm actually got hit pretty hard by China for anti-competitive practices. And that happens all the time. Uh, you see, you know, governments will order changes, sometimes like the, uh, the AT&T case in the 1970s or 80s, they split up the actual company. So, you know, you do see some big intrusions, but this is one of the larger ones that I've ever seen, you know, essentially ordering the company just to throw out all their top management and put in U.S. compliance monitors. Uh, Let's move now to the second story you have for us, which is a soccer or football story appropriate during the World's Cup. China's team, of course, didn't make the World Cup, but there was a Chinese presence nonetheless. What's the story here, Doug? Oh, the story here is that suddenly China is uh, filling in a bit of a vacuum at the World Cup, and it's a huge sponsorship event for, for companies to get their name out there. And this time around, seven out of 14 top sponsors of the event are from China, which is a huge jump from the last World Cup when there was just one company on the list that was from China. There's a few factors at play here. Uh, one, one of the big ones is that a lot of Western companies are sort of shying away from the World Cup this time due to uh, a series of uh, corruption scandals at FIFA, which is the big world soccer governing body. Uh, and then the other is probably just, you know, that China really is rising. A lot of Chinese companies are going out. If you look at the companies on the list, a lot of them, you know, understandably are, are sort of export-minded, you know, want to develop their brand overseas. And who, who are some of these seven companies? Well, the, the list is, is quite diverse, actually. The one really big sponsor on the list is sort of interesting. It's Wanda, which is a company that was developing theme parks and, and real estate and hotels 
uh, and they were buying Hollywood studios. They were they were doing a lot of stuff outside of China. And I imagine they probably did this deal. They're like, this is one of the top tier sponsors. They probably did this deal when they were still coasting. Uh, since then, they've done sort of a big retreat as China's cracked down. So this this might look like a bit of a, a dud deal for them because they're in a bit of a state of retreat. Some of the other ones are, are sort of big name Chinese consumer brands. We got Hisense, which is a big appliance maker, Mengnio, which is a big dairy products maker, and then also Vivo, uh, which is a, a company that really wants to start selling its smartphones. It's a smartphone maker outside of China. Doug, the Chinese are pretty dispirited as usual over the lackluster performance of their national team, which of course didn't make the World Cup. Uh, do you think that a bunch of suits from these sponsoring companies just plucked at random uh, would, would whip the Chinese national team on the pitch? Soccer does have a, it has a, a big following here in China, but uh, I think Chinese soccer fans are, are pretty perpetually disappointed by the performance of their national team. Well, we'll see how the games go, and we will talk to you soon, huh, Doug? Okay. Thanks, Kaiser. Thank you. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Syndicate Business Brief is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Check out the latest podcast in the Syndica Network, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China podcast, as well as our flagship current affairs show. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.